Bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs and Alan Sellers. Today's episode is on the consumer voice in standards. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and I'm with Alan Sellers. Hello, Alan. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And how are you, Matthew? I'm very well, thank you. I suppose the first thing to say, Alan, is you're back. Yeah, I am. Uh, it's good to be back. I hope you're pleased to have me. Um, I've hol- been on a short break. A holiday with four children? I'm not sure that could be any sort of holiday. Well, you should come along next time. <laughs> and the second thing to say is, I suppose, welcome to the all-new BSI Education Podcast. After only 10 episodes, we've made some changes and uh, we hope you like them. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. In this episode, we are talking about the consumer voice in standards. Back in episode six of the podcast, we spoke with David Bell, BSI Director of Standards Policy, and Stephanie Einan, BSI Standards Makers, Development and Engagement Manager, about how and why BSI engages with a wide range of stakeholders to develop standards. Now, during that episode, which you can still find on the podcast feed, David mentioned the role of consumer representation in standards making. We said then that we should return to this issue and dig a little bit deeper. And here we are. Now, Alan, you're an engineer with Dyson. You're also a standards maker. So obviously, you'd be making the case for industry and manufacturers when it comes to standards. But the consumer voice, it's important too, right? Yeah, it is, Matthew. I mean, consumers don't typically know about standards. They can be a bit invisible to them. And it's a really important voice to add into the development process of standards because ultimately consumers are the users of products and services. And sometimes, more often than not, they will use them in ways that we didn't expect. So standards need to work for everybody. And that's why it's so important to have this voice as part of the process. Now, our guest today couldn't be better qualified to talk about this issue. Julie Hunter is an independent consultant, writer and researcher, specialising in consumer issues. In this role, she has delivered successful projects for consumer organisations such as Witch and Consumers International on topics including e-commerce fraud, insurance, inclusive service, complaints and redress. And since the 1st of August this year, she has chaired BSI's Consumer and Public Interest Network, or CPIN. Joining Julie is Liz Barkley. Liz is one of the country's leading experts on consumer finance. She is a Financial Inclusion Commissioner, Chair of the Fair by Design Anti-Poverty Campaign, a non-executive on the Lending Standards Board, and advisor to several charities and small businesses, combining these roles with journalism, broadcasting and coaching. For 10 years, she she hosted BBC Radio 4's flagship consumer programme, You and Yours, and she's also Chair of the BSI Consumer Forum. We had a fascinating conversation with Liz and Julie. We started off with blue videos, talked about button batteries, and then we went to Brexit and beyond. (laughs) Now, before we hear from Julie and Liz, a reminder that for more information on BSI Education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback.
we are delighted to be joined by Julie Hunter. Hello, Julie. How are you? Hello, Matthew. I'm fine. Thank you. And we're also delighted to be joined by Liz Barkley. Hello, Liz. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Matthew. It's fantastic to have you both on the podcast today. It's great to be on it. <laughs> we don't well, often get invited out, you know. Sometimes we uh, <laughs> we feel as if we're being overlooked. <laughs> oh, well, we'll put that right today. We're, we're always really interested, um, Liz and Julie, in, in how you get to where you are today, and, and particularly with the standards angle. You mean, you mean how did I become obsessed with standards, I think is the question you're really asking. Um, it I, is, yes. I started my career in citizens' advice, and we worked very closely with the local trading standards department. So standards... Uh, were something that I was very conscious of right from the beginning. You know, the Trading Standards Department would help uh, the citizens advise clients to sort out consumer disasters, to right wrongs, to ensure rules were met. Um, We'd go on visits to markets to find counterfeit goods and often dangerous goods. So, you know, those are the, those that was the starting point, I think. And of course, there are an awful lot of different standards. I'm involved in lots of those now. But if I think right back to that beginning, one story that sticks in my mind is a gentleman who came into my office uh, with a blue movie he'd bought in a local shop in a brown Oh, really? <laughs> and he said it wasn't up to standard. It wasn't the standard he'd expected because it wasn't blue enough. Uh, so he wanted his money back. The request had been refused. He wanted me to watch the movie with him to get a second opinion and then help to get redressed. Now, I have to admit that I didn't comply with the request and he did get a refund. I didn't watch the movie. <laughs> but, you know, we had all sorts of wonderful experiences from watching Trading Standard conferences, sofas being set on fire so that they could test fire safety, etc. You know, and really thinking about how standards like that improved and even saved lives, demonstrations about choking on batteries, etc., and how to stop that happening to not only children, um, but all of that really intrigued me. And that led to an interest in consumer protection, safety standards, toys, batteries, fire safety, repairs, refurbished goods, and so on. And then now um, my life is dominated by standards, Equity Release Council Standards Board, Lending Standards Board, Fundraising Regulator Standards Board. So there are all sorts of different, you know, voluntary standards, regulatory standards, safety standards, food standards uh, that I'm involved in and really am fascinated by. And it's still a journey I'm on i think it, it sounds very varied and broad i have to say <laughs> yes julie is. from your side julie from your, i mean uh, does your does your journey start with a blue movie <laughs> no it didn't <laughs> um i was invited to join um the consumer public interest network about um nine years ago now because they were looking for a um consumer expert in services and i'd been working at which um as a senior researcher and project leader for around six or seven years on topics like customer service, complaints, um, healthcare, financial services, tourism. So it's quite a broad um, remit, but it was all services related. Um, And to be honest, before I joined CPIN, standards weren't really on my radar at all because I was aware of the kite mark and maybe a few product standards which were used in the witch test lab, but I was working in services. And um, I think like many, many, many consumers, um, standards were 
a bit invisible to me. I mean, I know now that they're everywhere. They're all around us. We come into contact with standards every single day, but um, we just don't know it. So I think it was only when I started working at CPIN that I realized how many standards there were and realizing that they were such a valuable tool in the consumer protection toolkit. It's kind of motivated me to keep working with CPIN and to try and spread that word really to um, consumers and other consumer organizations to, you know, to understand the role of standards and, and what they can do. Matthew, I'm not, I'm not too sure. I'm, I'm happy with somebody on the podcast that, that says standards weren't on their radar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the key thing is they weren't, but they very much are now. Yeah, I think you're right, Matthew. I mean, Julie, you mentioned there about about CPIN. We'll come back to your to your role in CPIN there as as the chair of that of that particular organisation. But before we do that. Um, Liz, you mentioned there about the different types of standards. I think it's important to, to remember that. I mean, what we're talking about here is sort of f- formal consensus stakeholder model of international standards. Now, with those, obviously, they undergo a rigorous uh, process in terms of their development, and they're reviewed every every two to five years. And a really important part of that process is public consultation. So I suppose my question here is, you know, how, what do we really mean by consumer representation in standards? How is it different to public consultation? Why does it matter to have a proper consumer representation in standards development? Um, I think it matters hugely that the people who end up having their lives impacted either by the lack of standards or their lives improved because of the standards are involved in almost the co-design of those standards, if that's at all possible. Um, And the truth is we don't probably as yet have enough people involved. Uh, Julie will tell you much more about the network, the people who have got the technical expertise, who can sit on the standards committees and really make a difference. But from my point of view, the Consumer Forum uh, has a Consumer Forum Council, and we have a strategic role. We're bringing all sorts of organisations together, which uh, Age UK, Electrical Safety First, uh, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents, Citizens Advice, all of those organisations that are working on the ground to some extent in consumer protection. And so really understand, I suppose, what's coming over the horizon. You know, around the table, we uh, we come, all those groups, all the representatives come with foresight, with insight, with research and evidence, with uh, strategic thinking. And we're all thinking about what is happening next? What is what is coming that we really need to embrace and think about now? So, for instance, we've been thinking about new trade deals through uh, post-Brexit and wondering what will that mean for consumers? And, of course, we've heard quite a lot in the press about chlorinated chicken, but it's much, much broader than that. It's, it's about what we import into this country and to what standards those products are made in the countries that they're coming from and how the trade deals, uh, you know, how, how can we influence so that we are sure that our consumers in this country will still be protected to at least as high a level as they have been uh, previously. So we're, we're always thinking about uh, what is the next thing that we should be trying to help uh, the standards makers prepare for, and what that you know, what the a good standard would look like. So you know, we've been through COVID. We're thinking about standards on people in vulnerable circumstances because 
they are in different vulnerable circumstances and different people are in vulnerable circumstances. What about mm-hmm. the standards of face masks, for instance? Uh, you know, what about uh, standards for working from home? All of those issues that have popped up during COVID are things that organisations round the table think about. Julie and CPIN are a very important factor of that uh, strategic council. And so we all work together to help guide where standards might need to be built, but also what standard committees would be best uh served if they had a consumer representation on that committee. And then, of course, we hand over to the committees in the network, and that's Julie's domain. Mm-hmm. Just just on that, uh, Julie, just picking up there what, what this was talking about, the, the, the really important, it's very important that the, the consumers are represented in this process. I'm just interested about when. When should it happen? We talked there about the committees, but when mm-hmm. should when should when should the consumer voice be present in that development process? Ideally, we like to be there right at the very beginning. So um, we work very closely with the staff at BSI to make sure we're aware of standards that are coming up. We also put forward ideas for where we think there are gaps. Um, But we try to get in there right at the very beginning so that we can influence the scope of a standard and and the content and what it's going to include or not include. Um, And that's why it's different to the public consultation, because you mentioned that earlier. That cut, it's a very valuable check and balance public consultation. And we definitely want to encourage as many organisations as possible to get involved at that stage. But that comes after like one or two years of drafting usually. So um, there's no opportunity there to help develop the content from scratch. And that's what, you know, CPIN and other consumer organisations can do if they're members of um, committees or working groups that are developing standards and were involved from the very beginning we can make sure that all of the key issues are addressed right at the start, um, which makes the standard much more you know, credible and, and robust. So it's really, really important that we are involved. As Liz said, we can make sure that all of the key issues um, are included. And coordinated consumer representation is very different to public consultation as well, because CPIN reps, for example, you know, we're we train all of our reps to make sure they take the needs of all consumers into account. They think about not just the intended use for product or service, but also unintended use, misuse, malicious use, and they try to identify all of the risks that could occur. So it, the consumer representation is very, very important, and it has to happen right from the beginning. You mentioned, well, we've mentioned CPIN a few times already. So before I, I'm going to ask you about CPIN's priorities and sort of where it where it sits uh, within the sort of the, the standards making infrastructure. Before we do that, though, let's hear from Helen Gray. Now, Helen is part of the consumer team here at BSI. I spoke to Helen last week and asked her to give us a CPIN in 60 seconds. The Consumer and Public Interest Network, or CPIN, is an independent consumer organisation. It exists to empower and protect consumers making everyone's lives safer, fairer and better through effective consumer representation and British standards. Established in 1951, CPIN's trained volunteers participate in the development of standards to highlight key consumer issues, making sure that real-life problems are addressed and the risk of consumer harm is minimised. CPIN believes that all consumers have a right to safe and accessible goods and services, clear information, fair treatment, effective systems of redress and a healthy environment. 
CPIN representatives use the United Nations guidelines for consumer protection as the foundation of their work. They sit on hundreds of standards development committees, speaking up for consumers. Now, Helen mentioned a really important point there about CPIN. She mentioned its independence. Just for you, Julie, what, what do we mean by how is CPIN an independent organisation? Because if CPIN is an independent network of volunteers um, who speak up for consumers in standards. And, and what a lot of people don't realise is that we do operate independently from BSI. So I lead the CPIN steering group, which has oversight of the CPIN strategy. And we decide on our own priorities, which work we're going to um, undertake. We develop our own views, consumer positions. Um, and BSI facilitates and supports our work via the consumer team. So that's Helen, um, who we just heard from, um, a team of fab people at BSI HQ, basically, um, who make all of our work possible. Um, so we do operate independently, but with support from BSI. And we also have funding from Bayes to make sure that um, our reps have the resources they need to travel to meetings um, to make sure, you know, we fulfil the obligation to include a consumer stakeholder. So, Bayes, obviously, just to, to clarify, Bayes is the, obviously the, the uh, business and industry department, department here in mm-hmm. the UK. Yeah. In terms of priorities, and what are the current priorities for CP and what are you, what are you currently working on? Okay, well, broadly, we um, operate um, – All our work is based on five priority areas. So we have inclusivity, sustainability, consumer safety, digital, and I'm going (laughs) to... The other one will come to mind in a moment. This is a test. This is a test. (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh, (laughs) But we have five priority areas. And basically, if new work comes in, if it meets one of those five priorities, then we will... um, undertake that work so we also um our work is based on the um guided really by the consumer principles so they're things like making sure that consumers um have you know access to the products and services they need that products and services are safe safety that was the fifth one um that they have the right information to make sure that they can, you know, make informed decisions about the products and services they're using, that they can access redress. Um, so there's lots of, of priorities um, and principles that we use as the foundation of our work, basically, to make sure that consumers, are, you know, getting what they what they need from products and services. And. Next year, 2021, it's the, the 70th, 70th anniversary CPIN. So that's a fantastic mm. long-standing tradition here, isn't it, for consumer reps? Yes, it is. We started life in 1951 as the Women's Advisory Committee. Um, obviously, we do let men in now. So um, <laughs> we're a much broader group of people, much larger group of people now. Um, but, yes, yeah, 70 years, it's a fantastic achievement. It's still going strong. That is great. <laughs> Liz, on your side, so we, we've talked a bit. Of, we've talked about the Consumer Forum and CPIN. I just wonder how how those two organisations work together. How does that How does that work? Well, as I've said, uh, Julie attends the council meetings, and uh, so CPIN is a fundamental element of the Consumer Forum Council. And then, uh, quite apart from those strategic meetings, then uh, Julie and I. Uh, meet up as and when we need to in order to discuss things that are on the horizon. 
Um, and of course, we have the Consumer Forum Conference. That's on the 18th of November as part of the BSI Standards Conference this year. This is the second one, and CPIN will be very involved in that. And we, uh, we work together, uh, I think, to try to get much more awareness, but also to spark interest in the kind of people who might be interested in joining Julie's network and to think about the kind of organisations that might be thinking strategically who we would like to invite to come onto the council. So we do work together very closely, um, but always in mind, in the back of our minds is the question, um, who is out there that we might work with uh, better and more effectively in order to help make BSI's standards more uh, effective for the people who end up using the products. So it's always about putting the consumer at the heart of it. And I think that's where we both come from. That is our motivating factor. So it's very mm. easy to work together on that. Just a final thought about the about the sort of infrastructure then. We've talked about the UK. I I assume there's sort of European and international structures and systems for the consumer voice? Yes, there is. And uh, to be fair, uh, Julie will know much, much more about this than I do because I have not been involved at the international level. Um, but we do have various structures and various committees that the UK has been fundamentally important to over the past few years and will continue to be involved in even after uh, the 1st of January. And so those will continue to be important. And BSI is a national standards body. So along with other national standards bodies, uh, it is very important to keep up that connection. Julie can tell you more about ANEC and Capulco. Um, we have a lot of acronyms in BSI. Uh, and although I've been here for about a year now, I'm still trying to get my head around some of them. Don't worry. I've, uh, I'm five years in and I still struggle sometimes with the various acronyms and names. I was just going to say, we also have the ISO standards, the international standards. So, uh, you know, it all plays in together. But Julie has got a better picture of that, I think, than I do. Mm. I think, I mean, around 95% of British standards are actually international in scope. So it's really, really important that the consumer voice is heard in those. We know that a lot more issues, consumer issues, are global now. You know, as we shop online and we, we travel, um, we are kind of getting rid of borders in terms of the way that we that we, we move and we spend um, and international standards are really valuable because they can address these um, global consumer issues and kind of reach across borders because obviously there's no legal framework um, that reaches globally. Um, so standards can ensure that there's uh, consistency and quality and protection um, and seeping contributes to international standards, um, well, lots and lots of them, via um, BSI mirror committees, which are here in the UK. So that's groups of experts um, that will discuss um, our contribution to a specific standard here, and then we will go forward and put that forward as our national position into an international standard. But we also have lots of members of CPIN who sit directly on working groups as consumer experts, and we work very closely as well with um, consumer organisations to share insight um, and to strengthen the consumer voice because CPIN is kind of the gold standard of consumer representation internationally. We've been going, as I said, since 1951. We're quite well resourced. We've got very well-trained reps, um, more than 60 of them now. And we, 
we can put our view forward, but we also need other countries to be putting the consumer perspective forward to strengthen that consumer voice. So we make sure that we work very closely with other consumer stakeholders working in Europe and internationally as well. We collaborate quite a lot with Consumers International, which is a member organisation of around 200 consumer organisations around the world to better understand consumer issues that are affecting you know, consumers in other countries, which may be different to the UK. I think that's a really important point you, you both made there around the fact that by getting involved and by participating at a national level through BSI as, as a national standards body and other national standards bodies around the world, you're automatically influencing the international standards because of the vast majority of standards are, are, are operating at international levels. So I think that's a really, really important you've, you've both made there. I just wonder what, to move us on then to uh, looking at... Um, the impact, the difference that consumer representation is having, you know, what difference that it, that it that is making you know, that consumer representation is making to actual standards that are out there. Do you have any particular examples you you could share with us? You mentioned earlier on, I think, issues around consumer vulnerability and, and button batteries. Maybe on on the button batteries, Liz. Anything you want to expand on for us there? Um, well, I um, <laughs> I think it should, I think one of the issues is that. We probably uh, started looking at button batteries because of toys, uh, but it has since been recognised that button batteries are used in adult products as well. And so it's not just about protecting children when toys are bought for them, but it's also about protecting children from household items that might hold button batteries, if you see what I mean. So it's always about starting somewhere and then thinking much more broadly. Seatbelts, for instance, if we go right back to seatbelts, when they were designed, they were designed with men in mind as the drivers. And it was the standard that actually got to the bottom of the fact that, well, seatbelts designed just for men don't necessarily fit comfortably for women. And so therefore we have to do a bit more thinking around about how we design seatbelts. So if you, you know, if you look at uh, those two examples, and then, you know, we talked about fire safety, but what about dishwashers, for instance? Uh, we've had, we've had a lot of incidents in the news, in the headlines this year and last year uh, about fires started by dishwashers. So what is the standard and how do those dishwashers that that do uh, cause fires, how do they fail to meet the standards? Uh, have they been imported from a country that doesn't meet the standards or has actually somebody made a mistake somewhere in the production and therefore it's a situation where they have to be recalled? Uh, more recently, face masks, for instance. Face masks were, a lot of face masks were made that didn't meet the standards. And so therefore a lot of money was spent uh, on in, you know, in ineffective face masks. So those are all examples of where really good input from consumers at the beginning of the process, as Julie says, we want to be right in there at the beginning. So at the beginning of the process, uh, can we influence how products are designed as well as produced to a standard that works for all of the people who will end up using it in all of the circumstances that we can possibly imagine? Uh, but then standards are living documents and they do have to be revised and looked at and reviewed uh, because technology changes, etc. And we're now looking at standards because our our lives are so much more digital 
now than perhaps anybody even imagined at the beginning of 2020. So we, you know, that will be another area of concern. Have we got the standards right? Do we need to rethink them? Do we need to revise them? I, I found it really interesting that at the beginning we started talking about the invisibility of standards to consumers. And then I can see that through the organisations that you represent, the Consumers Forum and CPIN, that you're trying to address that invisibility to consumers. And then you're bringing that consumer voice into this process as, as part of the stakeholder engagement, which we've talked about before in, in previous podcasts. And it's fascinating to hear how that consumer voice has brought about these changes. But are there any kind of specific examples that um, you can refer to just to bring home to to our listeners some of the specific changes that have that have happened? I mean, from from my involvement as a as a standards maker and and as somebody that works in you know. Uh, household appliances i know that we have a box of fingers in in our test lab and i think that that might well be as a as a result of uh, some of the work that has been happening through through this consumer voice being brought to bear on on the standards development process well that uh, is now, a really good example yeah. alan <laughs> and i think julie uh, knows a lot about that one yeah but, i uh, mean it will really paint a picture yeah, I mean, I can give you a few examples, Alan. Well, around domestic appliances, was we started when CPIN started work, it was a lot of, of the issues were around product safety and around domestic appliances. That's how, that's how we started, um, and there's some really good examples of of how we've um, managed to improve products by making them safer, better quality, more accessible. And also making sure that they address real issues that affect real people. Because one thing that's really important to remember is that even businesses with the best intentions can often miss things. Um, and s consumer reps can point out things very often that businesses have missed. So I'll, I'll take you through like a little journey from lawnmowers to domestic appliances and test fingers <laughs> to connected toys. So I'll take you through that briefly because that's kind of a good chronological journey as to what uh, we've I'm, done. I'm going to enjoy how you connect these dots, I have to say. <laughs> well, so we've got lawnmower safety, okay. So when new electric lawnmowers were introduced, all of a sudden there were lots of um, women going to A&E with foot injuries, chopped off toes. Okay, women were using lawnmowers for the first time. They were lighter than petrol mowers, okay but they were using a vacuuming action. So they were going forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards. I'm doing the motion, but you can imagine. Um, whereas traditional petrol mowers were pushed up and down in lines. So there wasn't a bar at the back to protect feet from blades. It hadn't been needed before. And it took a consumer representative to point out the problem. Hang on, these new electric you know, lawnmowers are being used in a different way to the petrol ones. And that's why all the injuries were being seen. And they managed to get into the standard that there should be a protective bar fitted at the back. And all of a sudden, hey, presto, feet were intact. So that's one really good example, I think, of how, you know, businesses just hadn't seen what the problem was and, and a consumer rep had pointed it out. The other thing that you mention is um, the box of test fingers. <laughs> Which does yeah, make me yeah, laugh. I, I, do, um, I do have to clarify, it is a box of test fingers, <laughs> not, not actual fingers. fingers. But um, another example is domestic appliances. So traditionally, um, we've got 
a whole range of standards that cover different domestic appliances. So, you know, refrigerators, washing machines, etc. And previously, the standard only allowed for like the the intended audience, um, which was, you know, if you were between 18 and 60, for example, that you would be you would be using those appliances. But of course, we all know that other people in the home come into contact with those appliances. You know, children use toasters, they use kettles. Um, and for example, if a small child is playing in the kitchen, they're very close to the refrigerator. If their little car goes underneath the fridge, they're going to put their hand underneath there to try and get that car out. Now, previously, um, access to live parts was only tested with an adult-sized test finger, which meant that smaller fingers could get in, causing... And, and, I, and I'm guessing that's important because those live parts could, could electrocute somebody. Yeah, could cause, you know, serious injury or, or even a fatality. So um, consumer representatives campaigned for a child-sized test finger to be included, and, and it was. It's now happening across a wide range of standards. So that's a really, really important um, consumer success and, you know, really important for consumer safety because we use domestic appliances. Um, we all use them in the home or we all come into contact with them. So it might not be the intended user in the, you know, instruction manual, but, you know, people do have um, access to them in the kitchen. And then finally, kind of moving on to the kind of modern day, we've got connected toys. So we've been doing a lot of work on um, toys that are connected to the internet. And some consumer organisations a few years ago discovered that strangers could hack into children's toys, find out their location, and even speak to children through the device. So that prompted um, CPIN to drive forward a new international standard on privacy by design um, because I think a lot of manufacturers just weren't considering how these um, toys might be used maliciously and the consumer representatives helped to point that out and the privacy by design standard will help to make sure that these issues are addressed at the design phase so before the toys even get to market it'll be a checklist to get them to think about all the potential uses and to make sure that there's proper security and authentication so that you know strangers can't access them. So um, it's the next step on, I think, Julie, isn't it? Mm. From the days when we used to stand in the lab and watch uh, eyes being pulled out of teddy bears to see <laughs> how easy it would be for a child to swallow up an eye. Yes, <laughs> you know. So when you think of uh, when you think of it, the standards have progressed as technology has progressed and as products yes. have changed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, technology has created so many new risks and challenges for consumers, um, and we need to make sure that we keep up with all of those things. And, and they're they're written into the standards as they're developed. And that's and that's one thing again. If I can just say that we will be talking about at the consumer forum conference. You know, we're living much more digitally. So where do those risks? Uh, sit now? Are there different risks that we need to be aware of and need to be addressing? Actually, um, Liz, you're right to mention the conference. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, to this episode after the conference, which does take place, um, 18th of November next week, um, it will be recorded. So you will be able to watch that after the event. Obviously, we'll, um, we, the uh, conference is online um, at the moment, like most conferences. So you will be able to listen to that, uh, listen to that after the event. Um, I wanted to, um, with you both, is there any other examples you want to share before we move on to sort of the final challenge, the sort of future challenges? Is there anything we've missed? 
No, I, I still keep coming back to uh, setting the sofa on fire when the fire safety regulations changed um, a long, long time ago. And I dread to think how long ago it was. Uh, it was really interesting to see how the tests were carried out. Um, and that has got to have saved a lot of lives. If you had a sofa that was likely to go on fire, then, of course, that might have gone to a second-hand shop that might have been then recycled to someone else. Fire safety regulations made it uh, impossible for those products that weren't tested and too standard to go on sale in the first place. And it then became... Uh, you would find then that second-hand shops wouldn't take those items of furniture that hadn't got the standard and that you didn't have the standards label for. So it did put, uh, it did help to, I am absolutely convinced, save lives in house fires that otherwise, uh, you know, might have happened because someone wasn't paying uh, particular attention. And so, you know, I really think that that is... Uh, I, the figures are out there somewhere as to how many fires have not happened as a result of those fire safety standards. But I think that just proves that standards can save lives. I think you painted a beautiful picture, actually, of the, you know, since 1951, how the consumer voice in standards has made a difference and has made an impact, as you say there, uh, Liz, on, on consumer safety. Um, and also some of the, you, Julie, you've talked about Seepin's current priorities uh, that you're working on, obviously looking forward to another another uh, 70 years, a 70, 70 year anniversary next year, and, and uh, uh, just keep going. We'll hit, hit 100 and beyond. I just wonder then, as we think you've got, we've got the current priorities, but thinking about future challenges in terms of you know, future challenges for consumer representation standards, Julie, what's uh, what's on sort of your your agenda and radar as we go as we go forward? Okay, I mean, well, we're seeing much greater demand for consumer representation now than ever before. And I think, as I mentioned before, this is due to a lot of new technology, things like connected products, e-commerce, globalization, new ways of doing things. All of these are creating new risks for consumers that we have to address um, and we can address through standards. And the important thing is that we need to be really agile. So one of my you know, key objectives as the CPIN chair is to is to strengthen CPIN and to make sure that we can be agile to respond to these new risks and challenges. And we've got flex standards now and PASs that can be developed more quickly. Um, but also things like the privacy by design standard, for example, instead of trying to change hundreds and hundreds of different product standards, we can have a principles-based standard like that that can apply to a very, very wide range of products and standards. And that's the way forward, I think, with some of these complex issues is um, creating these principled by design standards that can you know, work across a, a wide range, have a greater impact, I guess. So it's just really important for us that CPIN and our representatives have the resources that we need to meet that demand. And we're building on our um, membership all the time. We've always got lots of um, events and people coming forward to um, to just show an interest in being a consumer rep, and we always welcome you know new people who want to become a consumer champion in standards. So, so where can they get involved? Um, it, it sounds like you you need some more people. Maybe people listening here would like to get involved. Yeah, we're looking for people with a really broad range of skills. Everyone is um, c can um, 
be tra- everyone is trained and we you know we support them through the process you can have a look at our consumer pages on the bsi website that's bsigroup.com forward slash consumers um or you can drop us an email consumer at bsigroup.com Thanks for that, uh, Julie. We'll we'll put those uh, links up on the episode notes as well, so people can can go through directly. Great, thank, thank you for you. Re- thank you also for mentioning. You mentioned their PAS, which is a publicly available specification, so a type of British standard and a nice a nice segue because we're going to be looking at one of those in the next episode. So thank mm. you for, for setting that up nicely. <laughs> My pleasure, Liz. From your side, then, in terms of you you mentioned Brexit at the very beginning, is that uh, is that the future challenge you think for consumer representation at the moment? Well, I think new trade deals definitely you know what what are the goods that we are going to be trading and with whom are we going to be trading them and i think that that is a a big area of interest for bsi certainly for organizations like which who sit on the consumer council the consumer forum council uh, so they bring those issues to the table but i'm also interested in sustainability in the environment uh, in things like uh, connected vehicles, for instance, because of course we are seeing a big move away from petrol and diesel cars to electricity. What will that mean in terms of standards and safety um, and ethics? Uh, as Julie said, you know, if we can get the values and principles into the design of the products in the first place, then that's really useful, but very helpful to have a standard that says to product product designers and manufacturers, look, um, consider the ethics right from the beginning Um, and vulnerability because I think uh, the world is changing so quickly. We were in the middle of a digital transformation, but I think we're about five years in advance of what we necessarily expected to be, given that we've all uh, had to rush to work from home and people have had to change their lifestyles as a result of the COVID pandemic. Uh, So, People will be vulnerable to different things. There are more scams on the internet, for instance. There are more people at home who uh, have no contact with the outside world during the day and who are struggling with their mental health. Um, And we know that that can lead to different patterns of behaviour. Have those patterns of behaviour been thought about in the design of products and services? Uh, Is there a standard? Is the vulnerability standard actually as up to date as it might be to take into consideration all of those changes. That's where my head is strategically. What is it that we need to be thinking about next or need to be dealing with next? And that's what the council is looking at now. That's a very interesting point because I guess over the last 70 years, who is thought of as being vulnerable as, as products and services have evolved has changed. Hmm. I'd love um, to add, sorry, and I just wanted to add to that. We are doing loads of work on vulnerability at the moment. Yes, we are. So I just want to get that in because we are doing, um, we've had a standard in place since 2010, which is a British standard on vulnerability, which we are now updating and revising as an international standard, recognising, as I said before, that these issues cross borders. Um, and we've had great take up in the UK by regulators Um Regulators, this is a really important way that we've had an impact on consumers because um, this is in essent- areas of essential service, so energy, water, um, and it's all about helping organisations to identify and support people in vulnerable situations. So I just wanted to get in there that um, there's lots of work going on in that space and you're completely right that it, the issues have changed um, and it's really important that organisations know what to do, You know what good practice is. But it's not just the issues that have changed, it's the what uh, 
to what are people vulnerable now? And so there is a lot of work being, a lot of thinking being done around that. And that is one, another of the issues that we'll, we'll be addressing at the Consumer Forum Conference. Yeah, I guess it'd be interesting to think about who is vulnerable in terms of uh, environmental standards that are coming in or uh, repairability or any number of different technological or, or yes, changes. Yes, or, or to scams, as I've mentioned, because, of course, you know, if you're at home and isolated, you are more likely to connect with somebody who connects with you um, and not necessarily realise that you're being scammed. And, and I can imagine that the consumer voice in that is is so important because, like you say, it, it would be less of a perspective that, say, regulators or manufacturers or, or anybody else involved in that stakeholder process of developing standards would, would be at home with. Mm. I mean, that's a key um, area that we're covering in the consumer vulnerability standard is the importance of consulting with consumers or groups that represent consumers to make sure that organisations have an understanding of the lived experience. You know, people who've actually lived through that experience of being vulnerable, what do they want? What do they need? And and what can businesses do to make their lives, you know, easier? How can they help them to access services, understand options available, um, make informed decisions? And there's a big emphasis now on situational vulnerability. So it's not just... Um, it's a moving thing. You can be vulnerable for you know a week or a month, and then maybe not. You could be suddenly made vulnerable due to losing your job, um, having a change in income, as Liz said, being isolated, maybe rural isolation. So there's lots and, of and bereavement, which of yeah. course is a big issue at the moment. Mm. Uh, but yes, as I said right at the beginning, I think um, it's the importance of almost that co-design. Mm-hmm. Uh, of products and services that uh, helps the the manufacturer and the designer uh, to realise from the beginning what that lived experience can bring to the process. It's certainly been my experience as a standards maker and and with the committees that I'm a part of that the the discussion gets uh, not heated but it it, it becomes much better uh, when we have a diverse range of thoughts around the table so i think it, mm. it's it's very important yeah and that's the important thing about having you know the consumer stakeholder because in standards development all relevant stakeholders have to be included and so that could include industry or you know academia but it also includes consumers and it is really really important because otherwise you've got a picture with a big missing part you know it's like a jigsaw puzzle you need all of those different pieces to come together to make sure that you're addressing all of the issues and if you have one of those stakeholders missing then you know there could be big gaps in in what standards offering but that also leads us on to the question about diversity, because, of course, we need diversity of thinking around all of those tables, which is why the council tries to draw in as many different organisations with as much expertise uh, across all the various sectors and issues as we possibly can, because you don't want a dozen people all thinking the same, saying the same thing around a table. It doesn't get you anywhere. You need the dozen people to be coming at it from different angles. So diversity is extremely important for us and diversity of thinking. 
I think that sounds like another podcast, doesn't it, Matthew? It does. In fact, yeah, I was about to say, we, we have got something lined up on that, on that diversity of perspectives. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's a really nice point on, on which to finish, really. I just want to thank you both for your fantastic insights and your your passion for the, for this area. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Julie. Great. Thanks for inviting us on. Thank you, Liz. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. You just heard a stripped media production. 